Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I am Lila Raptopoulos, and I'm in your feed with a special bonus episode. So every September, the Financial Times has their annual FT Weekend Festival in Kenwood House, which is this gorgeous estate in Hampstead Heath, which is a massive park in North London. And because I live in New York, every year I miss it. And I see all these photos of FT readers and journalists, and they're mingling together, and I imagine they're drinking Pimm's Cups, and they're asking big questions, and they're putting the world to rights, and I can't go. Of course, this year, they had to go virtual, which means they also got to go global, which means I got to attend, and it was excellent. And not only did I get to attend, I also had the honor of hosting a conversation with one of my very favorite poets, Natasha Trethewey. The conversation is about her recent memoir, Memorial Drive, which is about her life and her relationship with her mother and her mother's murder at the hands of her stepfather when Natasha was 19. The writer Mary Carr described it as a riveting memoir that reads like a detective story with the poise and clarity of Natasha's unforgettable poetry, and I completely agree. I started it thinking I would read a few chapters before bed, and then I didn't stop until four in the morning. Uh, that was when I hit the last page. Um, yeah, and I just had chills. For those who don't know her work yet, Natasha is a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, and she's a former U.S. Poet Laureate. Her father was white and her mother was black, and she grew up in the Deep South where their marriage really was a crime and an act of resistance. And her family participated in civil disobedience on many levels throughout the civil rights movement. So Natasha has experienced the depths of American racism. She has experienced many cycles of protest. And that makes this memoir feel especially relevant right now during the Black Lives Matter movement. The playwright Bonnie Greer wrote the review of Memorial Drive for the FT, and she wrote, Trethaway's masterpiece suggests that the greatest act of defiance a Black person can do is to remember. Now back in June, just before her memoir came out and in the days after police officers had killed George Floyd and the protests had started, Natasha wrote a very moving piece for us about exactly that, about remembering, and about her family. I'm going to read you a short excerpt. She wrote, America is a nation steeped in forgetting, in willed cultural amnesia and blindness to the ongoing everyday injustices suffered by African Americans. Over and over again, we see evidence of the deeply ingrained and unexamined notions of racial difference and hierarchy, the bedrocks of white supremacy, in people who consider themselves not racist. You cannot devalue and diminish the life of another human being without disfiguring your own soul. Nor can you heal a wound that's allowed to fester, growing more infected with each new act of brutality and injustice. The killing of George Floyd brought the long history of our national disease, our disfigurement, back to us in these excruciating moments, revealing the putrid ugliness beneath the filthy bandage we've worn for centuries and setting off protests around the country and the world. And it is beautiful, and I think you know how I am using that word. So, I'm bringing you our conversation now. If you'd prefer to watch it on video, I have included the YouTube link in our show notes. 
It's also worth noting that the FT is doing a lot more events virtually. The next one is called FT Next Gen. It's on October 22nd, and it's organized by FT Weekend and hosted entirely by our young editors. There are so many good sessions. Um, Galdem's Live Little will be talking about how COVID may change the internet. My colleague Oluwakemi Aladisui will be interviewing the president of Color of Change about whether social media activism actually works and actually affects real change. And my colleague Madison Derbyshire will be interviewing Hinge's CEO and Grinders Director of Product to figure out how exactly we're supposed to be dating in this pandemic. The link to that is in our show notes. Um, also, the FT Weekend team loves Culture Call listeners so much that they gave me an absolutely wild discount code for you. It's going to give you tickets to the festival for free, like entirely for free, zero pounds, zero dollars, zero cents. You'll want to use the promo code FTPODCAST. That's one word. Okay, let's get into our conversation with the wise and unparalleled Natasha Trethaway. Hi, everybody. I am Lila Raptopoulos. I am the co-host of FT Weekend's podcast, Culture Call. I am absolutely thrilled to be here with Natasha Trethaway. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning poet and two-time U.S. Poet Laureate. Um, Natasha recently published a memoir, Memorial Drive, which is hard to give a synopsis for, but I'll try. Uh, It explores her childhood growing up with a Black mother and white father in segregated Mississippi, moving to Atlanta when her parents divorced, um, her mother remarrying a man who became very abusive and ultimately killed her mother when Natasha was 19. Um, Natasha, welcome. And despite this difficult subject, it is such a pleasure to interview you. So thank you for being here and for writing this book. Thanks for having me, Delilah. It's good to talk to you. Yeah. Um, I was hoping maybe you could start with a passage um, from Memorial Drive to sort of introduce anyone who hasn't yet read it. To sure. I'm going to read a little bit from um, the opening and the prologue. Three weeks after my mother is dead, I dream of her. We walk a rutted path an oval track around which we are making our slow revolution. Side by side, so close our shoulders nearly touch, neither of us speaking, both of us in our traces. Though I know she is dead, I have a sense of contentment, as if she's only gone someplace else to which I've journeyed to meet her. The world around us is dim, a backdrop of shadows out of which now a man comes. Even in the dream, I know what he has done. And yet I smile, lifting my hand and speaking a greeting as he passes. It's then that my mother turns to me, then that I see it, a hole the size of a quarter in the center of her forehead. From it comes a light so bright, so piercing, that I suffer the kind of momentary blindness brought on by staring at the sun, her face nothing but light ringed in darkness when she speaks. Do you know what it means to have a wound that never heals? I know I'm not meant to answer, and so we walk on as before, rounding the path until we meet him again. This time, he's come to finish what he started. Holding a gun, he is aiming at her head. This time, I think I can save her, 
Is it enough to throw myself in the bullet's path? Shout no. I wake to that single word, my own voice wrenching me from sleep. But it's my mother's voice that remains, her last question to me. Do you know what it means to have a wound that never heals? A refrain. Nearly 30 years after my mother's death, I went back for the first time to the place she was murdered. I'd not been there since the year I turned 19, when I had to clean out her apartment, disposing of everything I could not or would not carry with me. All the furniture and household items, her clothing, her large collection of records. I kept only a few of her books, a heavy belt made of bullets, and a single plant she had loved, a Diffenbachia. Throughout my childhood, it had been my responsibility to tend to it, every week dusting and misting the upper leaves and snipping the browned lower ones. Be careful when you handle it, my mother warned. A small precaution, seemingly unnecessary, but there is a toxin in the sap of the Diffenbachia. It oozes from the leaves and the stems where they are cut. Dumb cane, the plant is called, because it can cause a temporary inability to speak. Struck dumb, we say, when fear or shock or astonishment renders us mute. Dumb grief, when the grief is not expressed in uttered words. I could not then grasp the inherent metaphor of the plant, my relationship with my mother, what it would mean that she had made its care my duty while warning me of its danger. I keep an image in my head of myself from that first day after her death at the apartment. There's a video recording of my arrival made by a local news station. And so the image is not only of those few moments, but of watching myself from a distance entering my former life for what I thought to be the last time. In the footage, I walk up the stairs to the door and step in, shutting it behind me. When I think of it now, I don't hear any words, the volume on mute. Perhaps the reporter spoke our names, or perhaps she did not, calling my mother victim instead. And in my mind's eye, a caption fills the bottom of the screen. It identifies me as daughter of the murdered woman. Even then I felt as though I were watching someone else, a young woman on the cusp of her life, adulthood and bereavement gripping her at once. The young woman I'd become walking out of that apartment hours later was not the same one who went into it. It's as if she's still there, that girl I was, behind the closed door, locked in the footage where it ends. Often, I've seen that doorway in my dreams. Only now is it a threshold I can cross. Thank you. That was really beautiful. Um, I was telling you before this uh, began that I started reading your memoir one day, thinking it would be just a normal day. And um, I just ended up awake until three in the morning um, until I finished it. Um, it just totally enveloped me. And, and one of the things that I kept thinking as I read it and I'm thinking about again now listening to it as you read is how in that moment when you were 19, you were tagged with this new 
sort of tag, a very, very scary one that maybe you didn't choose, a daughter of the murdered woman, um, that it was so simplistic and uh, crude feeling. And I wonder how it felt at 19 to be sort of given that identity from, from the world and how you, how you began to either reckon with that, that label or, or pushing, push that part of your life away. I think it was um, a great um, burden to carry in a lot of ways um, to all of a sudden have um, a, a thing in one's past that so many people thought of as sensational um, that, um, you know, even well-meaning people would respond with such a, a, a feeling of, of, revulsion or shock that always felt as if it were sort of being addressed toward me and not the situation that I was in. And I think that, um, that along with just my nearly unbearable grief is what made me try to, um, both carry my mother's memory and divorce myself from this past that I didn't want to remember. Mm-hmm. And so I, I practiced a lot of um, willed forgetting to try to get rid of those very difficult years. Some of my favorite poems of yours, especially in your first collection, Domestic Work, take photographs of Black people from history, often Black women who are erased from history, sort of women who maybe don't have quote unquote lives of note, what were kind of a backbone to their families or other people's families or the community or our economy, you know, the foundation of our country. And, um, and I guess I'm curious about the progression of your work, especially um, in the years before or, or as you started writing more and more about, about your mother and that story. Um, sort of why did these people speak to you and, and how did that work bring you to this work? Oh, that's a great question, Lila. Uh, thank you. Um, so yeah, you, you're talking about domestic work, my, my first book. Um, and a, a long section of that book is about my maternal grandmother, mm-hmm. um, Loretta Turnbow, who was born in uh, 1916 in the Jim Crow South Um, who used to tell me stories about her life that were always through the lens of work uh, because she believed that there was such a a dignity in in work. And I could see that community that she lived in, that she was a part of, which had been a settlement since after the Civil War of former slaves Um, I could see that it was disappearing as elders like her were dying. And so what I wanted to do was to to keep the memory of that particular time and place and those people alive. And so I started writing about um, my grandmother's life and the way that it it intersected with uh, historical moments, you know, from the Great Depression to um, FDR's New Deal uh, to the Civil Rights Movement placing her in the context of this larger public history. Um, I think that as I began to move from that work 
to what would become um, Memorial Drive, to, to the to uh, poems in, in my last book, Monument, um, poems in Native Guard, which were elegies to my mother. It was um, a long path to that. I began writing about my mother's death and my grief um, as soon as I began writing poems. Indeed, the first poem I tried to write as an adult was a poem that tried to contend with that grief. It was a very bad poem, but I kept writing them and I kept putting them away in a drawer because that grief felt so personal to me. Mm-hmm. Even as I understood the, the history and the role of elegy in public life, I still felt that those were private poems. So it really took me about 20 years to, to write poems, uh, elegies for my mother that were big enough, I thought, to share with others and not just this private box of grief. Mm. This parallel may not be, you may not, I, it may be a um, stretch, but I sort of see a parallel between you're recording them and you're recording your mother and your grandparents sort of not wanting either to disappear. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, this is one of the things that I, I write about also in Memorial Drive, that as a child, I was so attuned to trying to remember, trying to inscribe, uh, you know, in my psyche, every detail of my grandmother's house and the yard and the things in it and everything in its place, because I moved away. I, I, I left Mississippi and moved to Atlanta. And I thought, well, the only way to hold on to those things is to uh, indelibly print them, imprint them on my uh, psyche. Um, and so I was practiced at that, at, at recording imagery in a certain way. Um, and then later on, um, the more I began to forget my mother, the more I began to lose her in pieces, the more crucial it became to try to keep some memory of her, her living presence alive in my mind. And so I think that's the work of, of both the poems and the memoir, a kind of stay against the inevitable in which she is gone. Yeah. Natasha, I have to, I wonder like sort of what has it been like to open this sort of box to, you know, to publish what is um, probably the most personal thing you have written and could write and, and then sort of do a round of press essentially, (laughs) revisit it over and over. Like, I mean, not only how has it felt, but also how has it felt in this time? I mean, in in a pandemic during a the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, first of all, I mean, most importantly, how has that been for you? Has it been hard? <laughs> well, you know, you can, you can see what's happening to me. And it's, um, <laughs> you know, I've carried this for 35 years and talked about it um, here and there to, to friends and loved ones, um, even when it's come out uh, because of allergies. Uh, some bits and pieces I've talked about. And sometimes I'm able to do it 
quite matter-of-factly. Mm. Um, I never can anticipate when I'm going to um, to weep about it. Um, however, talking about this book, because it doesn't have quite the same mask that one has in a poem, because it is a memoir, mm. feels a little bit more exposed. And so um, I'm both likely to sort of appear as if simply what I'm reliving is grief, and yet that's not what it is. Mm. Uh, you know, part of the intention to write this book was so that to create a, a monument, a memorial to my mother, so that more people would know how remarkable she was, um, how she made me who I am. Mm. And so getting to have these conversations actually means getting to talk about my mother, Gwendolyn Ann Turnbow, so that more people know who she was that actually makes me happy so these tears might be uh, a little joyful too that's beautiful um <laughs> well thank you for sharing them with us really i mean um i you know i i was very moved by your young childhood sort of before your parents divorced and you moved to atlanta it felt like a very idyllic childhood but also i mean amidst a very violent backdrop. You grew up in a neighborhood in Mississippi, you were, I think you had said, or was once a settlement for former slaves. And you were born on Confederate Memorial Day. And this, one of these, your sort of family seminal memories is a story of the KKK burning a cross in your driveway. And um, while you were a baby inside. And, and despite all of that, it sounds like your family was really kind of an activist family. Your mother uh, very much so. Your grandmother, your Aunt Sugar, who's one of my favorite people that I met in your book. <laughs> um, you know, even your parents' marriage was sort of an act of civil disobedience. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, um, about the world in which you were raised and the, and the sort of the lessons that, um, that your mother and your Aunt Sugar and these people who raised you taught you? Sure, sure. Um, you mentioned uh, me being born on Confederate Memorial Day, um, and it was it was a pretty significant Confederate Memorial Day because it was um, you know, April of 1966, uh, exactly a hundred years after that uh, holiday to commemorate the lost cause and white supremacy was first celebrated, and it coincided with major advancements in the civil rights movement. It was just after the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act of 1964 and 65. And so, you know, anytime you had um, advances like that in civil rights, uh, in, in, in civil rights for African-Americans, you got white backlash in a terrible, terrible way. And so, um, you know, my mother's first uh, uh, on her way to the hospital, you know, to have me would have seen um, the the Confederate flags, you know, which represent, of course, the flag of treason, the flag of an attempt to destroy the Union of the United States, an attempt to maintain slavery. Um, 
everywhere around her. And she had to contend with bringing um, a biracial black child into the world at that moment. She and my parents had, uh, she and my father had to um, elope to get married because it was illegal in many states around the country for uh, interracial couples to get married. They had to um, go to Ohio, um, to Cincinnati where it was illegal. Um, so they broke one law by doing that. They broke a second law by coming back to the state as to Mississippi as a married couple. And yet um, we were able to feel occasionally safe in this enclave of family um, and extended uh, family friends, um, a, a black community uh, that was in many ways self-sufficient. Um, but there were ways that the outside world came in, as you mentioned, uh, a cross burning on my family's lawn. And I think that had a lot to do with my grandmother's activism. My grandmother had been um, assisting the church across the street doing a voter registration drive to get disenfranchised African-American voters registered to vote. And um, we were also living in the house with her at the time. And so we never knew if the cross burning was about uh, this interracial family living inside the house or if it was about the voter registration drive that the church had been taking, uh, had been doing that my grandmother was taking part in, or if it was meant to intimidate both. Yeah. How does your experiences, how do your experiences of, of, of um, that sort of backlash of such flagrant racism, sort of understanding the violence in, in white supremacy, and also seeing what resistance looked like. Um, how does that help you make meaning of, of this moment in this, in this movement? Well, um, so much of it seems familiar. Um, yeah. the, the recent um, rise of vocal and visible and virulent forms of white supremacy in the United States seems like nothing new to me. It's, it's what I think coming from a place like Mississippi, I have known exists as the underbelly of the United States for a very long time. Um, and the resilience and the resistance is also familiar because I grew up among people who were resistant and resilient. Um, what is obviously uh, different is the way that um, the world is coming to see uh, the importance of this movement in the United States and standing in solidarity with the idea that black life and black lives matter in this country as much as everyone else's life. We wouldn't have to say it. Yeah. We wouldn't ever have to say it. Yeah. if those lives were treated as equal to the other lives in this country. That is why we say Black Lives Matter. Not to diminish the lives of anyone else, but to say that they matter just as much. Right. I am reminded, um, as you talk a little bit of a very short chapter um, in your book called Pardon, 
And it's this memory of your mother changing your little brother who she had with her stepfather. And Richard Nixon was on TV having done something you said that you could tell had betrayed us. Um, and Johnson was pardoning him and he was saying, it Ford, could, yeah. is that, sorry, Ford was pardoning him and he's saying it could go on and on or, or someone must write the end to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt reading that so much, that feeling of like, how long can you live within chaos? Sort of mm-hmm. how long could the chaos of that presidency last? Or how long could this chaos with your stepfather have lasted? Or how long could the chaos of this presidency last? Sort of, I'm curious sort of like what you, what you were doing with that th- scene, what you were thinking in that scene. And um, Yeah, you know, I, I, one of the reasons that it stands out for me is that um, and I think most people must have something like this, some uh, defining moment early on in their childhood where they're first aware of some large political thing or, or some large um, national trauma taking place. I, I think about the children who were um, small children who were first uh, aware of of, of the events of 9-11 yeah. or in another generation, the people who remember when Kennedy was shot. Um, but that moment, that impeachment of Nixon and all of the, the, the hearings that went on and the way that I saw it again and again on the news is really my earliest recollection. And because it was about a grand betrayal of our nation, because this is someone who represents our nation in our nation's house, our domestic site of what should be safety and protection for all Americans was not. And it paralleled having brought someone into our house who was also um, betraying us um, with this kind of terrorism and domestic violence, I saw a connection between those things. And I also saw that someone had to put an end to it, that it needed to stop. Um, It could go on and on and on, or someone must write the end to it. Yeah. Did you, you know, you don't um, speak to this directly, um, but in in story you sort of do. sort of the systems that were meant to maybe protect you and your mother um, that didn't, um, whether that be um, the teacher that you went to, to to tell that you had heard your father, your stepfather beating your mother um, or the policeman that was supposed to be, you know, keeping watch of your house um, or your mother's house when, um, who had left, and sort of allowed your stepfather to, or then stepfather to um, come and kill her. And I guess um, I'm curious about that, about the places where there is a question I see about sort of gender-based violence. Um, And I also am thinking about like the systems that are meant to um, kind of protect our citizens that are not protecting our black citizens. And um, I I guess I wonder how you feel about that. Uh. Well, it just seems to me that another one of the ways that um, we are still 
struggling uh, as a nation to get to a place where we have equal protection under the law. Um, I think that um, my mother uh, and women often don't receive the kind of um, protection. Um, you know, she was considered um, a perfect victim. And what I mean by that is in, in organizations that, that work to um, prevent and end domestic violence, that's what she'd be called because my mother did everything right. Um, she was educated. She was well-connected. She was a social worker herself. Uh, she made a lot of money. She wasn't dependent on her abuser for the care of her children or for housing. And she sought the help of the police, the, di the district attorney, a shelter for battered women, and she, she still couldn't get away. Mm -hmm. So how do we tell women who are poor or who um, are dependent on their abusers that they can get safety, that they can get away if a woman like my mother couldn't get away? That still shows us something about how we perceive and how we treat cases of domestic violence or, uh, in this country. Yeah. Um, I see that we're running out of time, although I could ask you 800 more questions. And, um, uh, and there was a poem that I, I was hoping we would have time for you to read, but it's called Imperatives for Carrying On in the Aftermath. And I, and I recommend that everybody uh, read it. It's very moving and, and about your... Um, about your mother and your sort of other people's perceptions of, of what could have, should have been or whatever. Um, but I guess what I'm wondering in the last minute that we have is sort of how do you, how do you carry your mother with you now, now that you've sort of gone through this process um, of writing this book and of, of speaking about her, um, what are the, what are the ways in which she is with you? You know, that poem ends with um, something that uh, a Korean poet told me in Seoul. Um, he had been reading my book, Native Guard, and he looked at me and he said, you know, we have a saying in, in, in South Korea, which is uh, that one does not bury the mother's body in the ground, but in the chest. Mm -hmm. Or like you, he said, you carry her corpse on your back. I had to think about that for a long time. Um, because it was so clear to him because of my grief that I was carrying my mother's corpse on my back. What I realized and what I came to realize in the writing of this book is that I sort of have two versions of my mother. There is the, the, the one that buried in my heart, planted there like a seed whose living memory go, grows stronger all the time. And then there is the corpse that I carry on my back, my grief, that I will not and do not want to ever put down. Mm. Natasha, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts and your beautiful book and your poetry. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Lila. Thank you.